means my mic was on during singing. I apologize. <laughs> Hopefully Don had the, or Isaac had the wisdom to turn me off. And I was thinking while Don was praying and mentioning Thanksgiving, someone reminded me in the last week or so of a story I once told that helps to put in perspective what we can be thankful for. There's a story of an old French widow during wartime that was looking to feed her little children. And finally, after much searching and after much prayer and worry, she found a loaf of bread for her and her little children. And as she broke it, she said, all this and Jesus too, we are so rich. And how much more do we have? Man, we are the richest people who have ever been born on this earth. We have much to be thankful for. We're going to look this morning at Matthew 12, and we're going to start at verse 33 and go through 37. So if you want to put your thumb there, and then once you're there, then we uh, will ask that you stand as we read God's word. And these are the inspired, the theonoustos, the breathed out by God, words of the Lord. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And may God bless the reading of his perfect word. You may be seated. During this fall... uh, we noticed sometimes that our manure pump in the barn started doing things that it had never done before. And that was right towards the end, it quit grabbing what was in the hopper and pushing it out. And you know what that stuff is if you know what a manure pump is. And it started to do this intermittently, and there seemed to be no rhyme or reason to it. And so we just kind of played with valves and worked with pressure and finally got it going. But it did this a few times, and it never had done that. It shouldn't. It's not designed to do that but it was causing us problems that we could see. And I'll leave that to tie up later. We were dealing with symptoms of a problem. Hopefully, we're learning as we work through the Gospel of Matthew that Scripture presents itself as a progressing building up of ideas. One idea keeps building on the foundation of the last one and becomes the foundation for the next one. And that is precisely why we are dedicated to sequential expository preaching in this church, working through the Bible verse by verse as God, in fact, has given it to us. And I sometimes wonder, how much do we miss when we jump around and randomly pull verses out of their context and try to make immediate application without understanding what the verse even means? I read such a book last night. I was frustrated reading it because there was just verses completely misapplied to situations. Uh, And working through an entire book, verse by verse, rescues us from that kind of distortion. But then it's important to remember what we looked at last week. And last week, Jesus lays down a clear dividing line for the Pharisees after they have accused him of working in the power of Satan. And the Bible contains many warnings in both the Old and the New Testament about calling good evil and calling evil good. And so attributing the work of Christ to Satan is probably the most hardened and most extreme form of calling good evil that one could come up with. This is the kind of blasphemy that Jesus Christ is warning will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Christ threatens the Pharisees that what they're about to do, or perhaps even have already done, will not be forgiven. And the reason that the Pharisees oppose Christ is not because he has done anything wrong, And it's not because they deny the reality of the unseen spiritual world. They'll grant both. The reason they oppose Christ is because they hate him. They're intimidated by him. They're envious of him. These are men who have enjoyed the comfort of status in the community. They've enjoyed the comfort of their man-made rules and their traditions. And that's why they get so angry and so agitated when Christ starts preaching to the heart. 
These men have blasphemed both Jesus and the spirit that is working in Jesus. And now Jesus says that the reason for the blasphemy is because these men are actually rotten on the inside. We looked last week at how blasphemy is a sin of words, either spoken or written. And words merely communicate what's in our heart. And that's what Jesus is looking at in this text here. We've already seen that the nature of blasphemy being unforgivable is related to the fact that the heart that sins in this way will not repent. It will refuse to. It is hardened beyond repentance. And it's a serious warning. But Jesus builds on it further in today's text. So in verse 33, Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. And so Jesus here is concerned about both the root and the fruit being inseparably connected in a person's life. You cannot, you will not have one without the other. You don't have a crab apple tree if there's no crab apples that ever grow on it. And likewise, you won't get crab apples apart from the crab apple tree. You cannot artificially separate these things. They are connected, root and fruit. And so what we see on the outside of a person is a reflection of what is on the inside. And that's why Jesus prioritizes the inside. Remember, uh, a few years ago, John Piper was asked, why do you preach doctrine so much? Why do you, you know, why do you challenge people with biblical doctrine? And he says, you know why I do that? Because the heart is the most important thing in a man. Because the heart is the most important, I preach to people's heads. Because what is in the head fuels what's in the heart. You cannot separate this. Okay? Empty heads don't fan the flames of a fire in a person's heart. And the heart is, in fact, the fountainhead of the person. Our mouths and our actions are just the streams that flow down from the fountainhead. And so because of this truth... The only way to address the streams or the visible expression of what we see in a person's life is not by trying to manage the stuff, but by dealing with the fountain itself. Some of us in this region have high iron in your water. Has anyone ever had high iron in your water? Right? And the water stinks, and your sink starts to turn gray, and your hair starts, uh, the ladies in my house say that your hair starts to get all crunchy, and, and, and things do not look nice if there's not uh, a, a solution for the iron problem in your water. And there's two ways I suppose you could deal with the iron problem. One is to just ignore it and just deal with the symptoms. Go wash your clothes somewhere else. Keep scrubbing the sink. Do, you know, just deal with the symptoms. Or you can deal with the source of the problem. You can actually deal with the iron in the well, which is what Jesus is instructing us to do. Deal with the root issues. And the root issue, going back to my manure pump, I found out. One day I was hosing it down and I had my cell phone in my pocket and I stepped down off the gating and the top gate hit my cell phone, tink, 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 in the manure pump. So I got undressed as far as was decent and jumped in there as fast as I could to retrieve my cell phone. And I was up to this in manure playing around in there and it could only stand like this so I was feeling for my phone with my feet until I could pull it up like this. And mercifully it was still on. But I was covered head to toe in manure. But guess what I felt when I was down there? There was a big wad of straw blocking a gate from opening and closing properly all the way. So while I was down there, I opened it up with my foot. Problem solved. But I had to get down and dirty to deal with the root issue of what was causing the problems that we saw from the clean place up in the barn. The blocked gate, the blocked pipe is the root issue. We were only seeing symptoms. And treating symptoms is healing too lightly. And so it is in our battle with sin in our lives. What we see on the outside of a man, foul language, gossip, bitterness, inconsiderate self-centeredness, living for ourselves, these are all flashing red lights that ought to tell you there's a problem deep down inside. Dealing with the stuff is not going to get you very far. It's warning you there's a problem in here. And Jesus says that only things that come out of us were things that were already there, right? I've heard heard the analogy that, you know, if you're like a full glass, if you bump a glass, the stuff that comes out is the stuff that was already in there. The bump is only an occasion for the stuff that's inside to come out. And I believe that is true. If you try to deal with foul language at the level of what comes out of your mouth, you may find limited success in short spurts. 
but you will not have solved the root issue. Why is that in there in the first place? Jesus uh, talks about these things, and, and I think we need to make application here. The anger, the frustration, and the pride that caused the cursing are all matters of the heart. And that's where we need to get to work. We need to get down into the dirty stuff and deal with it. The Lord tells us to make the good tree good so that the fruit will be good. And he warns us that if we make the, bad, the tree bad, we can expect bad fruit. And so we know that our, on our own steam, we cannot change our natures or cause ourselves to be born again. And this is the work of the Spirit of God. And it's important to remember that so that we can give God all the glory in our conversion. And we have been discussing this quite a bit in Sunday school, including in this morning. How does this start to take shape? And the Bible says certain things, and yet we can't really understand the full mechanics of what it is when the Holy Spirit of God gets a hold of us and gives us a new heart. But we do know that it is His work. So there is no contradiction whatsoever in the prophet Ezekiel saying that it's God who takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. It's God himself, through his spirit, that does this heart transplant. There's no contradiction with that. And Jesus here, putting the responsibility on you. Okay? He says, just do this. Make the tree good. You are responsible for the condition of your heart. So get to it. Make the tree good. There is no contradiction here. Jesus is putting the responsibility for each one of us on ourselves. It's actually you that owns that heart. It's actually you doing the sinning. It's actually you either putting sin to death or not putting sin to death. You are responsible. And so, yes, it is true. We are choosing what we want at all times. And this is precisely what Christ means when he says that a tree is known by its fruit. So we need a new heart with new desires in order to produce genuine Christian fruit. And I think there are at least two ways that we can distort these truths. There's often a ditch on either side of the road uh, that we need to beware of so that we are balanced Christians. And so one is this idea of fake it till you make it. Who's heard that sage counsel, right? Just fake it till you make it. Right? So just start producing the right fruit in your life. Just do it. Just start producing spiritual fruit. And eventually, according to this advice, you'll be able to change your own heart by peddling harder. By running faster, you'll be able to change your own heart. But this assumes the exact opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says the fruit is the effect and the tree is the cause. And so this makes our self-effort in producing the right fruit the cause. If we fake it till we make it, this is the same fallacy that you have in evolution. Right? Well, how did the universe come into existence? Well, it just brought itself into existence. Well, that means it was there before it was there. That that doesn't make any sense, okay? An unregenerate heart can't make itself regenerate, okay? Christ does that. So our self-effort will not bring this about. This would be like me finding an old dead willow tree at the back of our farm and then starting to tape. Remember, everyone's grandma used to have plastic fruit on the table, right? Taking grandma's old plastic fruit and taping it to the willow tree and see, saying, look, look, this is a fruit tree. No, it's not. No, it's not. So that's one distortion, that would cause our fruit, our spiritual fruit, to be a fake gimmick and not a genuine change at the core of man. On the opposite side, we may have this thing, well, then I guess I'll just stand around and do absolutely nothing. Because it must be a miraculous work of the Spirit of God, I'll just sit here and wallow in my sin because it's all helpless anyway. But what this attitude does is misunderstand that the grace of God And being made alive in Christ, to be made alive, these are potent motivators for action, not for inaction. These are meant to motivate. Yes, with man it's impossible. Yes, but with God all things are possible. This is meant to motivate. Get into it. Press into Christ. And you will find that these things will be true of you as well. So to sit around lazily in indifference, making friends with your spiritual lethargy, your spiritual laziness, misses that God actually means it when he offers the gospel. Yes, the Spirit is the one who gets the glory for the work, but you know the surest way to know that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life? (laughs) Repent and come to the gospel. (laughs) This is how you know. Do it. But I can't... Right. Do it. And then you will have evidence that the Spirit of God has indeed been working in you, and he gets all the glory for it. But you don't need to understand how the mechanics work to do it. Jesus calls sinners, come. 
So come. Come. Be made alive. Come and see that the Lord is good. Come and see that he is giving new hearts to produce new fruit. And so both things are equally true in conversion. We must come to the Lord and do it today. Make the tree good, Jesus says. Become alive in Christ. Come to him for the forgiveness of your sins. And don't put it off for another day that the Lord may or may not give you. Don't wallow in the mud wondering if this can ever happen. The best evidence that it's happening is that you come now. That you're trusting in the Lord today. That your heart is soft now. Leave your sin at the foot of the cross. And come to Christ to be covered in his righteousness. You can be free from the guilt. You can be free from the shame that you've built up over the years. And when you consider what's all happening in your heart and in your conversion, you'll read the Bible and you'll see that all glory goes to God. So if you're struggling to know how this all works, you're in good company. But Jesus makes it simple. He says, you are responsible to make the tree good, and so we must start bearing good fruit if we have this new heart. And the only way that we can make the tree healthy is to be rooted in the gospel of grace. So come to the Lord Jesus and do not delay. And Jesus intensifies this confrontation here. Keep in mind, these Pharisees are wealthy businessmen. They're the people that are wealthy enough to own books. They get titles like reverend or doctor in the marketplace. And Jesus shows he has really zero respect for any of them. Remember, these are men who are used to getting honor. And Jesus says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you snakes. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so Jesus is turning his teaching back on the Pharisees that he has just warned about, the unpardonable sin. And these were, like I said, men who are used to getting the respect of the public and given honorable titles, and Jesus shows zero respect for their hardness of heart. He calls them vipers, snakes, asps. He shows that he is no respecter of persons at all when the truth of the gospel is at stake. And so, of course, these men are going to accuse the God-men of being evil because they themselves are evil. They cannot speak good of him because they are wicked snakes, according to Jesus. And they are echoing the same vain, empty, wicked hiss that the first serpent hissed when he appears in Scripture. So these snakes, just like that one, trusted in themselves more than they trusted in the Lord God. They were both guilty of leading others away from a humble trust in the Word of God and towards a kind of self-centered autonomy that puts man over God. And this is why it is so serious when Christian teachers intentionally mislead people. Someone asked me a while ago, about, well, I'll mention a name because he is a snake, Andy Stanley. Is this man saved? I don't know if he's saved, but I do know that using his pulpit to lead people away from confidence in the Word of God, I know enough to know I do not want to be Andy Stanley in this moment or a man like him. A man using your authority, a man using your microphone to intentionally misguide, mislead God's children. We're going to read later in the Gospel that Jesus says that if you lead my little ones away, it would be better for what? A millstone to be tied around your neck and thrown in the ocean. Okay? This is very important that we uh, honor the Lord. And these men who have this microphone, these men who have this platform are doing the exact opposite. Their dead hearts are spilling over into dead words. Their hatred of the Lord Jesus is evidencing itself in the way they use blasphemous words to oppose him. And it is impossible for them to speak good because they have evil in their hearts. It's in their nature. At Men's Theology Night this last week, we talked about how sin has marred the image of God in man. And our whole lives are really a process of becoming. We're all going through life and changes keep happening as we go through life. We're all, everyone in this room is in the process of becoming something. And at death, when we cross over into eternity, we finally become what we were becoming all the way along. Okay? You will either become like your father, the devil, or you will finally be glorified like the king of kings. Okay? We will finally become what we were in the process of becoming. And so what's in the heart that's revealed through the fruit really does matter. I remember back many years ago, 
the night that it became plain to me that if I could read the tea leaves at all, Tanya was going to be my wife. And it was fall, it was about this time of year. And I was uh, farming with Grandpa at the time, and I was supposed to trade him off on the cultivator at 5 a.m. And of course, I didn't sleep at all that night because I was excited, I was giddy. And I went to the field, I traded him off at 5, and then I couldn't quit talking about this girl. And over the next few days, I was living with my grandparents at the time, I kept talking about this. And one time I finally stopped myself and I apologized and decided to change the topic. Sorry for talking about this so much. And you know what my grandma said? My grandma said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. She was right. It just comes out. What your heart is full with comes out. And this is a manifestation of how we're actually designed for glory. This isn't a defect in us. This is how we're designed. We're designed for glory to come out, to overflow. What we delight in will come out. And it says in verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. We are all wired for glory. And we express it by wanting it to be contagious about what we do. And look, we do this with sports teams. We do this with stories from the past. We do it about a good movie. And we also do it in the realm of the religious material that we fill our hearts with. One guy won't quit talking about how the Lord got a hold of him and saved him. The next guy can't quit talking about his unbelief or his atheism. Another guy won't quit talking about how he's trying to avoid it all. Because this guy's always talking about the nonsense and the antics he's filling his life with to fill the void. You all know the people that always have music playing because they can't be alone with their thoughts for three minutes? Okay? They're always moving from one party to the next because they can't stand to be by themselves for half an hour. Okay? He's also overflowing with something, with emptiness. Another guy takes every opportunity to share how he's an underdog and he's a victim and everyone's got it better than me. We all know people like this. What's in us comes out. And this is why when we see hypocrites who say that they believe the right things, but their fruit is at odds with their profession, we should trust the fruit more than what comes out of the mouth. Okay? If there's a disjunction between the mouth and the actions, trust the actions. They don't lie. They don't lie. And so for the righteous, this means that more and more we will overflow with righteousness and joy. And for the wicked, this will come out more and more in the form of criticism, victim mentality, bitterness, sin, envy, an inability to be quiet and to think. And people like this love to pull others into the gutter with them. Misery does love company. It really does. And the Lord's instruction here should cause us to examine our actions, to examine our words, and to examine our fruit so that we may see what kind of tree we actually are. If you see lust, covetousness, vanity, pride, and a victim mentality, resentment, bitterness, carelessness, then one can fairly assume, if you're not working against those things, one can fairly assume the tree inside there is rotten. And that rottenness goes with you wherever you go. See, the problem is if you have a rotten tree and you move it from one circumstance to another, from one garden to another, nothing actually changes. Okay? If you plant this tree in prosperity, it will become proud. And if it's planted in difficulty, it will become bitter. But the rottenness is there regardless of the circumstances. The rottenness wants to come out. If he is blessed with many gifts, he will turn in on himself. And he, if, if he receives few gifts, he will turn in on himself. The circumstances don't actually matter. The heart matters. The circumstances are just the occasion at which this comes out. On the flip side, if you are starting to see more and more the fruit of the Spirit, which Galatians describes as love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control growing up in your heart, then you can have assurance that the tree is good. And this tree also brings fruit wherever it's planted. There's a story of a man who moves to a new town. And he goes, and there's this old-timer sitting on a park bench, and he goes to the old-timer and he says, you know, I'm, I'm new in town here. I don't know anyone. Can you tell me about this town? And the old-timer says, well, why don't you tell me about the town you moved from? Well, yeah, sure. No, you know, it was good. Uh, everyone was friendly. People were chatty. You know, there hospitality. Everyone was good. It was a nice, clean town. Uh, people were friendly. And the old-timer says, well, you'll find us to be just like that. And a little while later, another man comes to the old-timer, sits down on the park bench, says, hey, I'm new here. I don't know anyone. Uh, I'm a stranger. Tell me about your town. 
And the old-timer says, well, tell me about your old town. Oh, it was terrible. People gossiped. People were backbiting. Everyone was out to get their neighbor. It was terrible. Everyone was, you know, had their nose in everyone else's business. And the old man says, well, you'll find we're just the same. Okay? You'll find we're just the same. One question I like to ask people, I've actually had the bravery to do this once or twice, uh, when a marriage is especially tough, typically I'll ask the husband, I'll just say, hey, are you the kind of guy that gets bad service quite often in a restaurant? Okay? Some guys understand what's happening. Right? The, the guy who has no clue what's happening says, yeah, how'd you know? Okay? Because the problem is you. The problem isn't that every waitress you've ever met is not doing her job. You're the problem. Okay? You're going to find this church to be just like the last one. You're going to find these people to be just like the last ones. You're going to find these friends to be just like the last ones because it's about you. It's what's in your heart that's interpreting these facts. It's not necessarily about the surroundings. And so the heart really does matter. Jonathan Edwards, speaking about conversion, says, True salvation always produces an abiding change of nature in a true convert. Therefore, whenever holiness of life does not accompany a confession of conversion, it must be understood that this individual is not a Christian. Hard words, but true. If there's no fruit, sorry, you're not a Christian. Now, you can be. Come to the gospel. Come to the Lord. But there is no such thing as a Christian who's a Christian up here and not in here. Has never happened, is not happening now, and will never happen in the future. What Edwards is saying here is another way of what Jesus is saying, which is this. A profession of faith is not the same thing as the possession of faith. Okay? You can profess all you want with your mouth, but it doesn't mean you're in possession of saving faith. Believing that God exists... And showing up in church does not make you a Christian. Okay? Believing that God exists and even believing that the Bible might be true does not make you a Christian. There's a difference between believing in God and believing God. And so we need to all ask ourselves, is the root of the matter in us? And if it is, then we have been grafted into a source that will continue to produce fruit in your life. And if it is not, no real lasting fruit will appear. And so if this is where you are this morning, the good news is that the tree can be made good. Okay? Not by self-effort, not by trying to tape fake fruit to it, but by coming to the Lord Jesus. The tree can be made good. With what's impossible with man is possible with God. This root can be tapped into. The Bible often uses grafting language. God can graft anyone into this tree of faith. So come. Christ is still in this business of breathing new life into people and giving them a new nature through the gospel. Jesus goes on in verse 36. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so there's a warning against hypocrisy here. Speaking words which are not genuine in order to deceive is careless. And surely many or most or maybe all of us have had the frustration of dealing with someone that you know their word means absolutely nothing. I'll be there at 9.30 means absolutely nothing. <laughs> I'll pay you next week means absolutely nothing. It's very frustrating working with people who are careless and idle in the promises and the commitments that they make. And these people are double-minded, so they try to cover their rotten fruit with deceptive words. They try to make themselves look good for the public when their fruit is wrong. It's rotten. And Jesus says they will be held to account. And he says here that ultimately we will be justified or condemned by our words. And on the surface, this may seem to pose a problem. How are we to understand this? Because isn't the scripture clear that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? So by Jesus saying you're justified by your words, is he setting up a different path of salvation? And of course he's not. Is he speaking only of our profession of faith that we can utter with our lips? Is that enough to be justified? And of course, the answer is no. We've already preached through Matthew 7, 21, where Jesus says that not everyone who professes Lord, Lord will be saved. So a profession with the lips is clearly not enough for these people whom Jesus says, I never knew you. So it's more than just the profession with the lips. Okay? Again, understand this distinction between the profession of faith and the possession of faith. It's not necessarily the same even if it ought to be. So rather, Jesus is not speaking of the doctrine of justification here. 
He's talking about the vindication of what's in our hearts. And so when we face the Lord at the final judgment, and he plays back the entire recording of our lives, if that recording shows a pattern of empty, hollow words, we will be condemned because our words have clearly demonstrated that the root of the matter is not in us. We're a bad tree bearing bad fruit. If, on the other hand, there is a pattern of sound words and sound actions which reflect that the gospel has taken root in us, then we will be shown to belong to Jesus Christ. And our words will have shown that there is indeed a good treasure in our hearts, and we will be moving on to our eternal reward. And so the word justification can refer to how we're made right in God's courtroom, and we, talk, we use the word justification then about salvation, being made right in God's courtroom. Or it can also refer, and this is how Jesus is using it here, to how a claim is vindicated or shown to be true. So this is a kind of validation. Okay? Uh, and the, the, the context and the author's intent always uh, dictates the meaning of something. So if I say, you know, uh, I won't pick any names, but let's say, hey, uh, what's your cell number? That means one thing if I'm trying to phone you and another thing if I'm trying to visit you in prison. Right? What's your cell number can be two <laughs> different things. Okay? And the meaning is dictated by the intent of the author, by the intent of the speaker. So here, when we get to this word justification, don't trip up over it. Jesus is not talking about the verdict that God gives in his judgment. But it can be used in that sense. Think of it this way. If one of these young guys tells me, hey, you know what, Pastor Matt, I can bench 300 pounds. I say, okay, impressive. I want to see it. And if I go and they do it and I see it with my own eyes, their claim is justified. <laughs> okay? It's been shown to be true. It's been shown to be accurate. It's not a false claim. That's the sense in which Jesus is saying we're justified with our words. This will show what's in the heart. So another way of speaking about this, in the terms of salvation, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is true. And so that is, salvation comes only through a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus. But the salvation itself is vindicated or justified in that sense in the fruit that it's bearing by the kind of language we use, by the kinds of lives we're living. So the fruit is how our profession of faith is justified and shown to either be false and hypocritical or true and genuine. And so how do we make application of this as a church and as individual people here? And like so many words of Jesus, these are hard words. They really are. They're maybe not hard to understand, but they sure are hard to receive, aren't they? I find when I'm sitting in my office on Thursdays doing sermon prep, I get beat up and like, wow, this is tough. <laughs> How are you going to preach this? Because Jesus' words really are tough. They are hard. And we are not used to living in a society with such direct and confrontational speech as what Jesus frequently gives. Nor are we accustomed to language which is so laser-focused on our allegiances and in setting forth a clear path, making a clear decision become like what we worship and laying it all out on the table. You are worshiping somebody and whoever that is, you are going to be more like him in 50 years than you are today and you will be completely like him in 10,000 years from today. And so when I think about a church this size, a group this size, there are no doubt genuinely saved people here who are struggling with assurance. And there is likely people who are not saved and just going through the motions of church attendance with a hypocritical heart. That shouldn't surprise us. That's in every church. It shouldn't surprise us if it's here too. We've got a range of people with hearts that are at a range of places. And I also fear that looking for fruit can turn into morbid introspection, where if you see any little patch of sin that's left in your life, you despair and lose your assurance. And that's not what's supposed to be happening here. It's sometimes been said that God is perfect and not a perfectionist, and I think this is true and comforting. So the fact that you still see remaining pockets of sin in your life should not cause you despair. It just shows you where to focus your energy as you grow more and more in the likeness of the Lord. But if this is you this morning, that you're struggling either with assurance or perhaps a false profession of faith, and you need to know the Lord in a true saving way, then I want to turn your attention to Christ's promise to shoulder your burden. The weary and the heavy laden can come to him to find rest. We've seen that promise. And looking at your profession of faith instead of the evidence of the possession of faith can also be deceiving. Many people do think perfectly orthodox and sound things. But again, if the fruit does not match 
what comes out of your mouth, then these are just ideas in your head and not actually laying hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there is really a ditch on both sides here. On the one hand, thinking true things about the gospel does not save. Laying hold of it does. So there must be some growth in fruit or else you are not a Christian. And not everyone's fruit is going to develop at the same rate. It's not all going to look the same, but it must happen. It must start to take form. We must start on that journey of putting sin to death. But then on the other hand, some people react so strongly against dead orthodoxy that they fall into an opposite error, which is very common in our day. The deeds, not creeds error. So I'm just going to set aside all that biblical theology and I'm just going to focus on being a nice person. I'm going to be a good person. But this mistake emphasizes our activity so much that we divorce it from the actual content of the gospel. And this quickly turns into performance art. If we're going to try to gin up the energy to put on a show for other people, to show them, like the Pharisees, that we're good people, but the root is not grounded in the gospel, we will soon find out that deeds, not creeds, is just another way of saying law, not gospel. Works, not faith, for me, please. I will choose death over life, thank you very much. Okay? There, are, there is absolutely no such thing as righteous action that does not flow from a regenerated heart. An unregenerate person cannot actually perform righteous deeds contrary to the claims of the world. In Romans 14.23, it says that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We cannot so much as move the needle of God's approval with our own self-effort. It must be rooted in the gospel for it to truly bring glory to the Lord. In Hebrews 11.6, it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is no righteousness apart from being united to Christ. There is no pleasing God apart from saving faith. And saving faith knows that the God of the Bible is real and he submits himself to the claims of that God. So it does matter very much what we believe about God and how he operates. But this believing must be of a different kind, mustn't it? We're all thinking of James 2.19. Well, okay, but what is saving faith? Because even the demons believe and shudder, right? James 2.19. So what's all entailed in true saving faith? And the kind of faith that transforms a bad tree with diseased fruit into a good tree with healthy fruit involves several aspects. This morning I indulged in a little bit of Latin and here I go again. It's been talked about three different aspects of saving faith and I'll give the English translation. But this has been talked about in terms of notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Well, what are those things? Well, notitia is just the content. So think if you make a note, a list of things. This is the content of the Christian faith. You must have an awareness of the content of the gospel. Okay? And then ascensus means to assent to something, to agree to it. This is true. I'm agreeing with it. So it's not just that it's historical fact, but now I'm saying it's true historical fact. And then the last one, fiducia. If you've ever been involved on a board or with the power of attorney, you've had to uh, promise to have fiduciary interest, to have good faith interest, to actually be acting on the best interest of the person that you're representing. This is actually putting your trust down. So one way we can speak of this is I can say chairs are meant for sitting in. Okay? Notitia. Just the concept. Chairs are meant for sitting in. And then I could say, yeah, I'm looking at a row of chairs. These chairs are meant for sitting in. I'm assenting. These chairs are meant for sitting in. But you know what? Until I sit in one of those chairs, I'm not putting my trust in it. I'm just saying true things. Okay? You must sit in the chair as that final step of salvation. So as it applies to Christ, we could say this. We could make a historical claim and say, yes, I believe Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross. Good. Necessary, but not yet sufficient. Then we can make a theological claim about the history and say, I believe Jesus Christ died for sinners. Getting there. We're getting awfully close now. Okay? Jesus Christ did die for sinners. Yes, this is true. But you know what? That does not apply to you until you can say, Jesus Christ died for me. I'm ready to sit in the chair. Okay? And unless you're sitting in the chair, saying true things will not save you. Sit in the chair. Trust in the Lord. 
Trust in him. This is true for you. And unless you can say that, your mouth will not save you. Rest in the chair. Sit. Trust in the Lord. He will promise to take away all our shame, all our guilt, and to usher us into eternity to enjoy with him. So true saving faith is well-rounded and it creates a complete Christian. The head and the heart and the action are all connected. You will not get far if you try to separate head and heart. I don't see Marv Harder here this morning, but he helped us butcher some pigs a couple weeks ago. If you wonder how long you can separate head and heart, I would say go butcher pigs with Marv Harder. And you will see exactly how long a pig lasts when its head is separated from its heart. Okay? You will see a flurry of activity. In fact, you might see more activity for a short spurt than you will in the other healthy pigs. But head and heart separated, that little spurt of action will not last. Okay? You are on a path to death if you're separating head and heart. It cannot be done. The whole person comes under the submission of the Lord Jesus. Head and heart. It must, or you are not a Christian. But Jesus' words and invitation are for you. Make the tree good. Come to him. Do it. Okay? I don't believe anyone in this room is past that point. So if you're not there yet, do it today. Don't delay it. We need a whole Christ and a whole gospel to make a whole Christian. So this morning, as we examine our own hearts, if there's some part of your life where you are a holdout this morning, maybe you're lazy doctrinally, Maybe there's a stubborn and rebellious refusal to submit some area of your life to the Lord Jesus. Maybe there's a failure to connect your behavior to things that you know are true. Then Jesus himself says, you're a diseased tree. And he offers the path forward. You're not operating as you ought, and the lack of fruit is demonstrating the fact that you need to become a new tree. So do it. Do it. Come today. And the good news is that what is impossible with man is possible with God. A leopard cannot change his spots. A diseased heart cannot make itself new. Lazarus cannot walk out of the tomb on his own. But you know what? God can do all of those things. If Saul of Tarsus can become Paul the Apostle, if Lazarus' dead body can walk out after Jesus says, Lazarus, come out, then anyone in this room can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be raised to spiritual life. This will not happen with techniques. It will not happen with gimmicks. It will not happen with effort. And it will not happen even by thinking orthodox enough doctrinal thoughts. And it surely will not happen by rejecting orthodoxy. It will happen by coming to the person of Jesus Christ and no other way. Coming to Christ in faith means coming as a whole person. Body and soul, head and heart, doctrine and devotion. And Christ has tied these things together so closely that by trying to separate them is to directly oppose Jesus himself. And the weight of the portion of Matthew that we've been working through has really hit me very hard. I've had many opportunities to have conversations with people with various struggles. And I can tell you, we have people in this church who feel like they're not good enough to come to Christ. We have people who have come to Christ and are struggling with assurance. And we have some who would like to live a lie by severing head and heart, either by pretending that doctrine doesn't matter or by pretending that faithfulness doesn't matter. And probably all of us have some loved ones in one of these positions, and it hurts our hearts. There is a pain that is so deep with seeing people we love not walking with the Lord. And that's why we pray every week for those people. As your pastor, I do feel the burden of all of this. And I want this message, and I want our whole ministry as a church, and I speak on behalf of all of us elders, to be freed from both the legalism and the carelessness that are so easy to get snared by. We would love each one of you to live in full joy and full assurance and full peace with the Lord. Just quit fighting. Quit fighting. Quit fighting with your self-righteousness and quit fighting with your laziness. Just lay down your arms and come to the Lord Jesus. He's given you the terms of peace. And so I plead with each one this morning, do this. Come to Jesus. Make the tree good so that good fruit will follow. And this gripped me so much this week that I wondered if it would be appropriate. And I'm not going to press anyone's conscience on this. 
but we all know people who are struggling. And I wonder if it wouldn't be a good idea if each one of us considered prayerfully fasting for this church, for unsaved family members, for saved family members who are struggling with their assurance, who are struggling with a particular sin or a particular difficult circumstance. I'd want to prayerfully challenge you all this week. If there's a day that you can circle on your calendar and say, we're going to set this day aside for prayer and fasting, for the health of this church, for the proclamation of the gospel, and for that gospel to reach into the hearts of those that we love and would so desperately love to see enjoying peace with God. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for the wisdom of your word. I want to thank you that just working through verse by verse doesn't allow us to skip anything, and it does force us to teach everything in your word. Lord, and I pray that I will have been out of the way this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit and your word will have done all the work in each one and will continue to do it. Lord, and we want to thank you and give praise so much for what you have done, what you are doing, and what we trust you will continue to do in this church, in the lives of each one in this church. And yet, Lord, at the same time, there are struggles and deception all the way around in this fallen world. And so I pray that we would take seriously your claims, that head and heart, root and fruit cannot be separated. Lord, and I pray that we would prayerfully consider each one, how we can grow in assurance, how we can grow in peace, and how we can effectively pray for those that we love and would so desperately love to see walking in peace, to put down their arms, to quit fighting and to know the joy and the sweetness that comes of making peace with you. Lord, I pray for each of those loved ones that we have on our minds. I pray that you would make the tree good. Lord, graft it into the root of your salvation. Graft it into the root of your gospel. And then I pray that we would see a harvest of 30, 60, and even 100-fold. We trust you to do this, Lord, because we cannot. Amen. Please stand as we sing a closing song.
The charge is this. Christ's words this morning present a strong challenge to those who would separate root and fruit or head and heart. Christ is not the least bit interested in treating the wounds of his people lightly or of pretending like there is, no pe- there is peace when there is no peace. Jesus Christ is interested in the whole man. And this means that his gospel brings peace to the whole man. In contrast to the Pharisees who concern themselves with externals and empty words, Christ starts at the core. Christ conquers from the inside out. By addressing the root, the fruit is able to come forth. And this is a wisdom from on high that attacks both our doctrinal and our moral laziness. If head and heart are separated in our physical bodies, it brings death. And the same is true for spiritual realities. Charles Spurgeon once said of John Bunyan, Prick him anywhere and you will find that his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. And so let us likewise be a people who so internalize the grace and the word of God that it comes out our fingertips no matter what we're doing. May our thoughts, words, and actions sing in harmony as they reflect glory back to our Savior. And then I'll leave you with the benediction you receive with believing hearts from 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And amen. And go in peace.